0: This week, I have one of my absolute favorite people on the planet, Dr. Rami Modaver. We have known each other since the earliest days of our residency. We're one year apart at our Tuts program in Boston. Uh, he's been one of my dearest friends on the planet ever since. He has just an amazing, remarkable history of the, the people that he's treated, the, the missions that he's been on. He is he's just such a unique good soul on the planet. I, I love him dearly, and I'm just so honored to be able to share his story in particular. I know you're gonna love this one. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Modman, envisioning a world where the orthopedic software we build increases practice success and improves patient outcomes. ModMed offers an intelligent, ortho-specific cloud platform of healthcare IT solutions that help surgeons and staff save time, drive efficiency, and elevate patient experiences. To learn more and see a demo of the number one EHR system, Emma, as well as practice management, revenue cycle management, analytics, patient engagement tools, and more, visit modmed.com orthopod. That's modmed.com orthopod. ModMed. It's about time from medical media this is the author show Hello, world. It's your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. Dr. Scott Sigmund here with one of my absolute favorite people on the planet. This is going to be an amazing episode. Today, we're traveling to Southern California, to Los Angeles, where I have so many dear friends from training as far as life experiences, and Dr. Modaber, M-O-D-A-B-B-E-R. Ramin, it is a pleasure. Love you, brother. How are you?
1: I'm great. Happy Sunday to you and yours.
0: Thank you very much. So Dr. Modaber is a hand and upper extremity orthopedic surgeon in Santa Monica, California, in a place they cannot decide what their name should be. I think this week it is the Cedars-Sinai curlin Job Institute, Santa Monica Orthopedic Group, but I'm assuming in about two days we'll have a name change.
1: Uh, I think I'm going to take the fifth on that. <laughs> 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 but yes, it's been an interesting several years. Um, As you know, we were a long-standing private practice in Santa Monica, and we were the Santa Monica Orthopedic Group, acronym SMOG, appropriate for Los Angeles. Then we became the Santa Monica Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Group because we were largely practicing sports medicine, had a sports medicine fellowship that grew from one fellow to three fellows before we formed this conglomerate with the Curlin-Job Orthopedic Clinic, and created this kerlin Job Institute, all under the umbrella of Cedar Sinai. Hence, why it's a confusing thing to <laughs> uh, to name. Reminds me of uh, these law offices that have Bernstein, Sigmund, Modaber yeah what, what, was, what, was, names, and what was the
0: Patriots running backs name they called him the law firm I forget but he had like four names I can't remember yes yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> finally they just answered the phone law officers can I help you <laughs> that may be us soon
0: yeah well we won't go there but I just had to get a little dig in there because everybody knows I did my fellowship at Carla Job. so uh who knows how it all plays out but let's let's start from the beginning because that's what we do here on the show we like to figure out why and when you know, medicine was going to be right for you because you didn't have any physicians in your family. You're the first physician in the family, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct.
1: My my dad is a PhD in microbiology and immunology, um, 100% research, worked through the World Health Organization and the Pasteur Institute, mostly in infectious diseases in the third world. So did some clinical trials and things with vaccines, but not practicing in the, in that sense.
0: So truly, truly world-renowned for the World Health Organization. We he's, throw the Dr. <laughs> he's the real Doctor
1: Monavre.
0: He's the real Doctor Monavre. I love it. The OG, the OG. I love it. So, but so, all right. So you're so you're growing up in the Valley. You're a Valley boy from LA, right? What Valley were you in again? San Fernando.
1: This is the San Fernando Valley.
0: Yes. And so you're in the San Fernando Valley with the Valley Girls. What was that movie with Nicolas Cage? It was the Valley Girls, right? <laughs> it was about like in the '80s or something. We were sort of growing up. Exactly. So you're growing up in the Valley, and uh, you're chilling, you're hanging out, and uh, you decide you're going to go um, to Berkeley for school, which is not a small feat in California, one of the more, most difficult state schools to get into. And uh, were you thinking medicine at that point, too, or where did that come later? I,
1: re- I really wasn't. I, uh, I was more fond of numbers than people at that point in my life, and I went there to be an engineer. They had a top engineering program at the time. And uh, after a year, two years, maybe, I sort of, I guess, evolved and became more social and tried to combine engineering and and people, I guess. And that turned into medicine. But I was a little slow to the gates and had to do some catch up. Took me an extra half year at Cal to do all my medical stuff and get ready to go off to, to medical school. It wasn't, a, wasn't an easy thing because I think I did get a late start relative to the the folks who, who really decided early on uh, that they wanted to be docs and Berkeley did kind of an interesting thing because they, there was no pre-med major, you had to pick a major and uh, so I chose this neurobiology major, just kind of a crazy major that um, there were only 30 kids in uh, and it was kind of an interesting one because you had to, you had to combine uh, academic interests from electrical engineering, computer science and then biology and all the All the rest of the there was five categories. I don't remember them all, but it was just kind of a way to make a big school small for me and, uh, you know, just chase that dream down the road.
0: Yeah I I mean you know we talk about this all the time on the show I mean it's if you're going to be a doctor you you got to like people right I mean if you don't like people then go find another job because you're taking care of people and I mean you're one of the 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 most friendly dudes on the planet so for me to sort of hear that you know retrospectively that you're like I wasn't sure but I mean you're like the the perfect doctor everybody loves you and you know you you you're an amazing communicator I'm so it's a natural fit
1: Yeah I mean I I don't think it came easy to me as, as a kid, you know, grew up in an area, there weren't too many Ramin Modavers floating around. So I think, (laughs) you know, it was Dave and John, I think at some point, my brother and I both wanted to change our names to Rick and Dave or whatever, but (laughs) parents were wise enough to say, (laughs) stick with it. But yeah, you know, I skipped a grade. So I was very young. I was sure, you know, it just wasn't an easy social atmosphere, um, you know, in the, in the pre no bullying days they could bully in those days and it was yeah that was
0: totally legal it was actually
1: welcomed and
0: we <laughs> yeah, encouraged it was, it was definitely a different era and your brother zia we we love zia but now i mean like Ramin and zia are like two of the coolest freaking names on the planet but i can imagine you know like in the day you know what's what is this thing where are you from what's going exactly. on exactly
1: exactly there's no time that you introduced yourself and what's your name Ramin? then they didn't go what <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't just turn around and go oh okay um you know, who do you know here?
0: <laughs> well, even though that's why your beautiful wife, Monica, calls you Ramon, because she figures it's just easier to just go with Ramon.
1: Everybody's phone autocorrects to Ramon anyway, so it
0: works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. So you figure it out. You know, you decide, OK, you know, I got the brains from dad. And by the way, we, we love your mom, too. Don't, don't say <laughs> I don't want anybody to think, think badly. But, uh, you know, you're deciding, OK, engineering is not right. I like people. Maybe this medical thing is going to be okay. And then you apply and you get into Jefferson and you head all the way across the country to a place you've never been. And you're in Philadelphia. And so what was medical school all about?
1: It was a big transition. As you said, you know, I've been in California my whole life Um, at least for extended periods of time. I had traveled quite a bit. Just uh, as I said, my dad lived overseas. So almost every summer I would go to Europe wherever he was So I had traveled, but I would not really lived outside of California. So going to Philadelphia and living in Center City was a change, like like most kids that go away for school. But I, again, met a core of really, really good people, friends that like to play sports and work out and do other things other than just go to the library and go to school. And that helped me tremendously. I was a little frustrated with the weather that you had to actually pay attention to the weather (laughs) because here in California, if you had a free afternoon, you just go outside and do something. And there it's not quite like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not, not exactly. They have this thing called snow and cold temperatures, but uh, not a lot of smog that's for sure. No. So the air quality was good. (laughs) It was just a little too cold for you out there. (laughs) No,
1: it was fun. They actually had this interprofessional league of, um, combined athletics like i played f- rugby for four years in were you the was, ball you Were you the ball, know.
0: or were you actually playing rugby I'm a, little, I'm a little concerned with you playing rugby i'm just saying
1: um yeah so i was out on the wing because i was fast and yeah uh, could run and evade gorillas trying to kill me but it was a professional league not professional like being paid professional and that you were playing against the law schools the medical schools and the business schools all in the philadelphia area oh that's cool that's really cool big a big draw and they had other sports as well i think we played in six or seven sports through medical school that kind of kept me sane because you know i'm not one to necessarily sit in front of a book or a screen for extended periods of time um I can do so, it, but I
0: still so do the orthopedic theme is coming out, is what I'm saying, what I'm hearing here. You know, the sports injuries, you're doing all kinds of cool stuff. And then, you know, so now that orthopedic, you know, process or or specialty within medicine may come to fruition.
1: Yeah, I th- I think you hit the nail on the head there. I had only really experienced doctors as orthopedic doctors, because <laughs> my brother and I really just I mean, I guess emergency room because we were in the emergency room <laughs> once every month or two. Well, with names
0: like that, you're getting bullied yeah. all the time.
1: <laughs> Thankfully, not from bullying and abuse, but more just uh, Z, as you know, is a very high-level gymnast and, you know, tears his ACL in college, you know, go through that drama. I was a gymnast in high school, broke a bone in my ankle. just Just anyhow, anyhow, the doctors that we saw growing up, uh, were orthopedists. So that's kind of what I thought a doctor was. And, you know, if you're active and you like sports and you like the idea of helping people get back to doing fun stuff as quickly as possible, it's a natural kind of uh, progression to orthopedics. And it's not like I didn't like the other specialties, but I just didn't see myself like managing blood pressure medicine for the rest of my life or looking at electrolytes and adjusting A, B, C, D. I just felt I'd have a bigger impact in a in a specialty I could relate to.
0: Yeah, and, and and orthopedics is just exactly that, right? I mean, basically, these people come in injured. We 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 see what's wrong with them. We make a difference in their lives, and they get demonstrably better, hopefully, by the things that you guys have done together. And so, there, there's a lot of gratitude, and and it's a real real healing that's happening in front of your eyes. So, it's, for that perspective, I think a lot of us as orthopedists really enjoy that part.
1: Hundred percent, and you know the nice thing that we say quite a bit uh, to those that we're mentoring is, you know, the nice thing about orthopedics is there's no two days that are the same. You see patients that are you know 100 years old, and you see patients that are three years old on the same day, and for a variety of different problems. And so, you know, I I, I appreciate that because I think I would get I would have gotten bored and burned out much quicker. <laughs> Than I did, so yeah,
0: awesome. So all right, so let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you and I come together in Boston uh, in the mid '90s. Uh, I'm a a chief resident. I'm a five, and we're actually no, I'm, I'm we're one year apart. So basically, we spent most of our residency together, going back and forth. And I recall there's a couple things. If I can share a
1: story of you and I doing an ankle fracture, where you cursed us as you put up the x-rays <laughs> i don't know if you remember this
0: oh this is going this deep
1: go for the chip shot <laughs> that was the quote <laughs> this is a chip shot well having seen you chip i now understand what that means <laughs> <laughs> we struggled with that ankle for an hour and a half to put that fibula back together but that was one of the all-time greats should have been very straightforward but even the giants struggle sometimes
0: yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, one of my favorite stories from the VA system was with Ken Levitsky. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a Morton's neuroma. You know, Ken was like, dude was just so into the foot. The foot was like the soul of the body. You know, he would go into the anatomy lab and dissect this out, this out, and the other. And so there was a a Morton's But I wasn't overly excited about the case. And Ken says, I go to Ken, do you mind if we let the medical student, you know, do this case? And he looks over to me. He's like saying, how many Morton's Naromas have you done? I said, none yeah <laughs> it's like what is That'd be zero <laughs> that means zero so anywho but uh you know it was a it was a great program for us and uh and then we sort of you know did our thing and then you sent me out to california to be in your hometown uh, to do the Curl and job uh, orthopedic fellowship and then you stuck around and then you went to mass general and worked with the world-renowned jesse jupiter for a fellowship in, in hand and upper extremity so we both had really amazing fellowship experiences as well.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It was kind of sad that you were here and I was there for that year, but uh, I think that year went by in a blink for me. It was for by far the hardest year of my training. We were you know on call every other night um, at a level one trauma center, basically as junior attendings taking care of hand and upper extremity stuff. And and Jesse's practice, as you know, is incredibly busy, and he had just the year before been the director of the trauma service for decades so a lot of what we did that year wasn't just handed up for extremity. you know he took over the hand fellowship for from richard gelberman who took the wash U uh chairmanship and jesse was still doing all of his old trauma stuff so here i am wearing loops doing femoral osteotomies with jesse during my hand fellowship and uh and we were three fellows at the time uh staggered every six months so we had a senior Because, you know, you're doing a lot of micro and I had really not much experience in micro um, during residency, as you know, but, um, you know, finishing that year, you felt pretty, pretty fearless to manage pretty much anything big and small that comes your way um, in practice. And so as painful as the year was and sleep deprived and all of that, uh, probably the most valuable, you know, one of the top two or three valuable years uh, in my education for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were, you were in the trenches. I mean, it was just, you could not have gotten more reps doing the things that you do. And then you just hit the ground running when you went to Santa Monica, came back in and like, you know, you were hired sort of as the hand guy, but, uh, you know, literally you were able to do any and all. And that probably, so, so then you move, you you spend, you know, four years in Boston and you get back and it's time to move back to LA and, you know, Actually, even getting a job, you know, in Los Angeles is still incredibly difficult. So, tell us about how how that actually played out. I mean, to get a job in Santa Monica, you know, re- really right where you grew up, is really pretty amazing.
1: It, it really was a, a stroke of luck, to be honest. I'd spent ten years on the East Coast, and during most of my fellowship, mm-hmm. I was kind of keeping my eye on job opportunities. You know, uh, my wife uh, Jill, she had moved to Boston uh, to be with with me and worked at WGBH, as you remember, the public television station. And she really wanted to come back to LA. So I always kind of kept my ear to the ground about job opportunities. And honestly, so few came up and none in the LA area that that were worthwhile. And I was at the AOS meeting that year, which was in San Francisco, and doing all the dog and pony interviews that you do at the AOS meeting, Checking the job board every day. And it was in the days when, like, specialty day was on a Sunday and Monday was a holiday, but they still had the meeting going. It was very bizarre how it happened. But I ended up at a whim on the last day of the meeting, just going by the job board, and a new job had been posted. And it said Santa Monica Orthopedic Groups looking for a trauma and hand person. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, who is punking me? There's no way. Right. Somebody After put all that all this job search. It's now February, you know, which is or March, which is pretty late in the academic year to not have a job.
0: Le, Levine or Sigmund posted that thing up there. And it's not I, a real job. There's for no sure, way. <laughs> yeah.
1: That somebody's messing with me. I'm looking around. There's nobody there. And so, of course, it's a holiday Monday. So I couldn't reach out to the administrator that I was supposed to contact. And I did the next day. And it turns out it was a real job. And it's, as you know, it's a mile from my brother's house. It's a mile and a half from my parents' house and, you know, Jill's family's in LA at times. So I mean, it just really was like a pinch me moment. And so I started then hustling and getting folks together to, you know, make some phone calls. And it just turns out that everything fell into place. Some of the uh, people that were close to that group were, uh, had some affiliation with my brother's law firm. We had the accountant for that group was like a partner of my stepdad, my dad who raised me. Just like a lot of things came together. And uh, I think I signed my first contract There, I think they offered me a hundred and twenty thousand dollar contract, and I bargained them up to 130. I played it really tough, (laughs) and I knew I would never be able to buy a house in Southern California, but I didn't care. I was just like, These guys, I want to join this group started just like taking everybody's call. And, you know, thank goodness I'd done a trauma fellowship because that's all I did for the first couple of years.
0: That's so funny. So first of all, we got to give a big shout out to Ted and Lil, cause they're going to be listening. That's mom and, and, and and Ted, it was your stepdad. And, uh, so we love them and adore them. and uh, But I think there's a couple of things about that story that are kind of funny. Like, what the, what the hell is a job board, right? Like, nowadays, could you imagine, like, having to go to the Academy, walk into some room somewhere, and look at a postcard sitting on a on a board compared to how we look for jobs now? I mean, it's crazy. It, absolutely.
1: And a lot of it was you did get a publication. I guess it was every month or so that would list the new jobs. And that's how you arranged your interviews over at the... Um, whatever they called it, the job job center. (laughs) And they would put you in this tiny little room. You'd meet some people. So you didn't have to travel all over the country. So at that time, that was like high-level thinking.
0: (laughs) Come (laughs) to the academy
1: and do a bunch of interviews. That's so funny. Cross, you know, you and I are having a conversation 3,000 miles away over a computer screen. It's unbelievable.
0: I know, that's that's absolutely so true. But I, I also want to be clear, let's, let's you know, you, you made it sound like there's all these people that were doing stuff. I mean, you had exquisite training, and the LA people love that Mass General Fellowship, right? I mean, that was a big card for you to put up on your wall, uh, to be able to say, look, you know, I've trained at the, in, at the most amazing facility in Boston with Mass General, Jesse Juber, so you deserved it. You got a great job. Yeah. It's a I mean, good story. it should have been the way it goes.
1: You um yeah, you triggered a, a memory that I, I don't think I've told, said out loud, but um one of the senior partners, I think the managing partner at the time had pulled me aside several years uh later and said that he got a call from Jesse. And Jesse, as you know, is very stoic, not not um one to show you all his cards. He's he said to this guy that as much as I'm trying to keep him, because Jesse was trying to, to hire me to to stay, so as much as I want to keep him, I know he wants to go home. And this is this is the best resident fellow I've ever trained. And I don't know if he's blown smoke or just to try to help me out. But that from him saying that, like I get chills in my arms just hearing it.
0: No, I love that. And, love and it And
1: saying it. So uh I guess it was a slam dunk or a chip shot, as you would call it. <laughs>
0: but <laughs> Those but chip shots can be honest. hard, dude. Once that,
1: once that job appeared, I was like, I got to get this.
0: <laughs> well, let, let's give you the contrast, because I've got a little history with Jesse Jupiter, too. So I went over and did, you know, three months over there or six, whatever it was. There was a period of time where I trained a Mass General from the Tufts program. Yeah, and that, was that, was our, our,
1: that was our level one trauma experience. Remember? That was if our level one, one trauma, trauma kids, experience. We weren't a level one trauma center for adults. So we had to do three. We had to go, with
0: Jesse. Yeah, we had to do we went and spent three months with Jesse so I'm working with Jesse on the first day. And the, the chief resident grabs me to go in and do some pelvic fracture. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is why I'm here. And I, apparently I missed a carpal tunnel that he was doing. I got called into his office the next day and I was fired. So there's the extreme of you've got the Vermeen ever, the best resident fellow ever, and you got Sigmund who was fired on the first day. Fortunately
1: <laughs> No, he fired people routinely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did get rehired on the second day. So yeah. I was able to get through it, but I think there's a couple of extremes. All right. So let's talk about some of the things that are, are unique to your practice. And one of the stories that I, I love, I, and I'll never forget it, you know, I'm sitting there, I don't know, I'm watching the news. It's like six o'clock or something like that, and then there's a press conference that you know President Reagan has a hip fracture, and then I'm looking on and I'm like, oh my God, I look up on the t v and there's you and Kevin Earhart and uh take us through that as far as the process of operating on the president it's public it's it's part of the public record, so I, I think you can talk about it in whatever way you feel comfortable
1: yeah, it's not something that we usually talk about, but you're right it's it's public, I don't think there's any. HIPAA concerns uh, at this point for sure, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was I was a pretty young buck. I think it was two thousand one, so I finished in ninety seven. So yeah, I'm four years into practice, the newest guy in the group. But Kevin and I became very close. Um, you know, we ran together in a running group, we biked together in a biking group, we traveled uh, ski trips and bike trips together. So we were pretty close, and he's sort of my mentor in the group, one of the founding partners. And he had taken care of President Reagan for some other things in the past and gets a call that, you know, he's coming into the emergency room with a hip fracture. And, you know, Kevin, and just like anybody would be in that situation, pretty, pretty nerve wracking to think that the next morning you're going to operate on, you know, the ex-president of the United States. And and, uh, he's humble enough uh, that he's like, Ramin, I want you to, I want you to be there. Cause I know I'm going to be a nervous wreck and uh, I need somebody. You know, normally we just, we'd have a fellow cause the fellows took call with us on the weekends and we do our hip fractures and everything else, uh, with the fellow. But, um, I said, don't worry about it, Kevin. I'll, I'll take care of it. Who do you want for anesthesia? Who do you want? You know, all kinds of just trying to make the whole experience as smooth as possible because, because one thing about being one step away from the doctor taking care of him is you can think clearly and get everything set up and make his life a little bit easier. So, arranging anesthesia, anesthesia, which is another good friend of ours who tells me he can't do it because he's got a hair appointment, and I said, "What, Johnny Cole? <laughs> Come, on, <laughs> John. Come, Johnny on. Cole. Come on, Johnny! Come on, Johnny! I say, John, President Reagan's coming in now. We want to operate on him first thing tomorrow morning. This was a Friday." Afternoon for a Saturday morning surgery, and John said, "Sorry, I got a haircut. Him. I'm sorry, I can't make it." <laughs> and I said, "Come on, John, that's ridiculous. Reschedule your haircut. Kevin's going to be a nervous wreck, and we got to, you know, keep the team together and keep everybody." And uh, he had some other wry words for for me, and uh, we got we got him there. Bottom line, he's at that press conference too. By the way, you'll
0: recognize,
1: <laughs> of course. Him. But. Um, so anyhow, yeah, the nerves are pretty pretty good over overnight, and uh, I show up in the in the operating room the next morning very early, as you can imagine, to make sure the fracture table and everything's set up. And I get there, and it's so it's so impressive. Our little community hospital, Saint John's, the techs are there, um, polishing the entire fracture table, you know, getting the old tape off with razor blades and polishing the whole thing up with such reverence to the patient that's going to be wheeled in that room. And it was such an impressive thing that sticks out in both Kevins and my mind, how, how the hospital did such an amazing job of just making um, everybody feel comfortable. And it's, it's an unusual thing. We had a Secret Service person who was very close to the family and had been with him since his presidency asked to be in the room which you know my normal answer would be no we want to focus on the patient we don't want anybody in the room and he kind of just looked at me with this very stoic face and said I'd really like to be in the room (laughs) "Um, okay looks like you're going to be in the room and you (laughs) you put some lead on over that gun and stand in the back of the room don't say anything don't move don't touch anything blue (laughs) class i got it doc i got it
0: <laughs> i love it I but love yeah
1: so and things things went fine that thankfully it was you know in those days we were doing dhs's for hip fractures and i think you know the surgery skin to skin was probably 30 minutes and no no issues with Anna it was C- a chip shot it. it was a chip shot something that you th- you can say in hindsight yes <laughs> 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 but yes this press conference was very interesting as well for whatever reason as I leave the OR, I grabbed a DHS implant and put it in Kevin's white coat pocket. So, you never know. Um, if you, you know, if you'll need this. And sure enough, like the third or fourth question from the press was: So, what type of device is is put into the, the president right now? And Kevin just like calmly reaches in his pocket and pulls it out, and it looked like a completely scripted thing. And it, it played very well. Um, and it's just one of those things. You're just happy. Everything went, went fine. And, and uh, we were all impressed with the level of just love for this man, that, uh, that his wife, Nancy, that the secret service team that I saw every morning when we rounded on him because he wasn't a healthy man. It he was quite old at the time, obviously um, he had a, he had a, you know, one of those suites at the hospital where she could stay with him in those days. That wasn't very common, but she never left his side. I mean, the the dedication and love that she had for him was impressive to all of us.
0: You feel comfortable reading the letter because I know that that's uh, an important you know moment in your life. Uh, I
1: do. I do have a a letter from her that I've framed and and I can read it. Sure,
0: I'd love to hear it. Thank you.
1: It's uh, it's dated January thirty first, two thousand one. Uh, Dear, from, you know, it's on stationery. This is in the good old days where you had stationery from the office of Nancy Reagan. Dear Dr. Modaber, I want to extend my gratitude to you for all you've done to help with Ronnie's recent hospital stay. I know that your tireless efforts on his behalf have contributed to his ongoing progress. Your expertise and your caring manner were such a comfort to me during those scary days and nights at the hospital. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that your choice of music during the surgery was quite interesting. Apparently the secret service had, had told on me that I was playing, <laughs> born in the USA when we started procedure.
0: Uh, <laughs> of course. I, love Anyhow,
1: it. I put a playlist together for that, but that's another story. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm so grateful you were there with us, but I hope you'll understand when I say, I hope it's a long time before either of us needs your skills. Again, you have our warmest, best wishes. Sincerely, Nancy Reagan.
0: Oh, how special yeah. is that
1: super super touching yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. the personal so, letter
1: you know we all get them uh as docs and they still you know every single one means something it's um i don't know we do we do a lot of it we take it for granted that we're helping people like you said but just something simple like a paragraph can can kind of keep your day going just like some jerk can ruin your day <laughs> <somewhere>. <laughs> yeah,
0: right, right. <laughs> we'll, well we'll take we'll, we'll stay with the high ground but yeah. It, you know, look, it's but we're you know Heather, we're going long here. I don't really care. You know, normally we stop at thirty minutes, but like we got so much more to get through here. So you know, I'm yours. Yeah. So so let's talk about a few. So one of the things about being in LA is that you know there's there's some there are some stars right. There are the the types that are out here in in uh, in Hollywood. It's movies or whether it's music, but you know these are interesting people, and I'll I'll never forget like we were you flew out for the AFC championship game, for example, and uh, in the, I guess it was Indianapolis playing, playing the, the Patriots as usual. And uh, and you get this text, and I'm like, dude, like we're at the game. What's what's going on. And you're like, well, well, the manager of the Rolling Stones is just texting me right now. Apparently I've got to go through something when I get back, we won't use names because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but that's sort of, you know, this practice that you've, you've got this sort of concierge practice that you've developed with an orthopedics. Now, granted, what you really do is, is just take care of patients, yeah. but you still do have that that sort of uh that sort of patient um population. Is that difficult? Do you like it? Um no, I I mean I do I do like it.
1: It's different as as you know. I think the mantra that uh I learned early on in this practice, and certainly nothing in, in training wasn't really exposed to it, but in the practice, you know, we have a saying that you treat you treat the VIP patients like like you do everybody else you you try not to break routine you try not to make it seem different and things are fine and and honestly i think they appreciate it in a certain way um, as well because very often they don't get treated uh like quote unquote real people but also i think a lot of what what i do and folks in the, in the practice do is we're pretty good at staying out of the, the limelight and staying out of the press and not having your name in the paper I mean, the President Reagan thing's hard to keep from the press, but pretty much uh, there's not a lot of fanfare with most of the things uh, that we do. You know, the entertainment industry doesn't really want to be known for going in for having, you know, injuries fixed and, and such. And, you know, my wife, Monica, who you know, who works with me is very good at figuring out ways to to make them, you know, not sit in the waiting room and get gawked at. And And many of them I will go do house calls once um, once there's no need for X-rays or wound care and, and such, that I can get away with, with that. And um, I have one later today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but um, it's 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 kind of it breaks up the monotony in a, in a way to do things like that. And it's still, you know, I'm sure like the very high profile sports guys that are taking care uh, of you know household athletic um house, household named athletes they're constantly kind of in the in the limelight and even though it may be one or two percent of their practice it's a it's a big big deal you know and and it's a little bit of a pat on the back um when they come to see you so you you take the extra little headache that's involved with it and and over the years i've you know i enjoy it it's it adds some spice to the the prep to the practice for sure
0: and they respect you and they appreciate you just like every other patient, you know, taking the time to go out of your way to go to somebody's house. I mean, they they do things, you know, in return for you as well. So, it you know, it is a, it's a cool thing to do. And what I like most about the way you guys handled in particular is your humility. Uh, it's not about screaming out at the top of your lungs as to who you're t- taking care of. And therefore, they come and they find you. And so what an honor and a privilege to be able to be asked, you know, to take care of anyone uh, for that matter. One of my other favorite Ramon, Ramin, M-O-D-A-B-B-E-R stories is Haiti. So uh, as the world remembers the uh, devastating earthquake that had occurred, uh, when was the earthquake now, Ramin? How long has it been? It's been a decade.
1: I just had the 10-year anniversary, so a little over 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, so you know the Haiti, this devastating earthquake occurs, and you guys, you know, sort of mobilize the troops, and we, you know, we could spend a whole podcast on that as well, and the, the the evening and the dinner, and how you finally decide to get it going. But give us the, you know, give us the Reader's Digest version of of the moment when the earthquake happened, and how you were able to assemble a team and literally fly into Haiti and, and take care of patients.
1: So yeah, it's 2010 the earthquake, so 12 years ago. Um, I wrote up a little thing about it, uh, that you probably read, but yeah, it started with, started with a a dinner, maybe a night or two after the earthquake, you know, we're all watching the news and, and looking at this devastation and my brother, who's an attorney and this, uh, uh, third player, Gary Kress, uh, who's a business manager for a lot of, uh, what I would call, I guess, a list celebrity types um, we're having dinner, the three of us. And, you know, they kind of look at me, we're all just talking about like, how can we help? What can we do? Um, both of them have clients and whatnot that have resources, but they're like, Ramin, you're the only one that can actually like go there and make a difference. Cause as you're watching the news, all you hear is we need orthopedists. We need orthopedists. <laughs> so I'm like, well, if you guys are, are really serious about it, let's make some calls tomorrow morning. And we'll just see what we can put together. And I'll just fast forward you know, a day or two. And between the phone calls made by, by them and some legwork by me to get hospital help and
0: um, an airplane, you need an airplane.
1: Yes. Medical device stuff. First it was, let's get a team together. Can I get a team together? So I called Kevin Earhart as, as we spoke about earlier. Um, One of our fellows who was French speaking at the time, just put his, you know, put his face in there and said, Hey, if you're going, I really would like to go. I said, you're on the list. And then, you know, we had two anesthesiologists, we had two OR techs, we had two recovery room nurses, so basically a team that could uh, could be self-sufficient, which turned out to be fortuitous and very valuable when we got there. But yes, the challenge was getting there and landing there because the airport had been taken over. It was now a US-led military operation that you needed a landing spot. Which was you know like golden ticket and Willy Wonka world, it was very difficult to get and through a series of phone calls with the Governor and you know Schwarzenegger and all these other players, um we could get a landing uh spot, and then the goal was to get a plane and one of uh one of the characters, I think this is all public, so I can talk about it, Matt Damon, who is a client um, of. One of the three people at the table, as I was telling you, uh, offered his plane. But unfortunately, the plane service that he was at did not um, would not authorize him landing in Port-au-Prince, would not let him authorize in Haiti. So went to the next level, which was I think John Travolta was in the works for a while. But Mel Gibson ultimately donated his plane to get us and our supplies there. And so we schlepped. Out to Camarillo Airport in the middle of the night, flying over. Um, again, long story short, two puddle. There's some drama on the way there, but I'll spare you. But we we land there with much of our equipment because the the next plane that we had to get on to land in Port-au-Prince, there was a weight restriction. So we had to get rid of some stuff. But um in any case, we we land, we spend a night, you know, in what we called Tent City, which is basically putting up tents on a cement floor. Um And then the next morning met with Partners in Health, which was the group that um, we had been in touch with uh, through um, a variety of of people, Ben Stiller and some other people that were instrumental in getting us uh, connected to the right people so that we could uh, have some influence there. And it was was a very productive morning meeting because we were this self-sufficient team. They drove us an hour, hour and a half outside of Port-au-Prince to a hospital Uh, A hospital that, you know, maybe did four or five surgeries a week. But the hospital um, was inundated with with patients that had been affected by the earthquake. And so here there's a hundred and something people, 80 of which are not in hospital beds, but they had cleared the pews from the big church at this hospital. And they were all laying on blankets and mattresses with their x-rays laying next to them. And uh, and our group went through the first night and routed on all 100 patients in the hospital and categorized them into A, B, and C patients. A patients needed to be operated on immediately. B, if we could get to them and see if we could get through the Bs. And we proceeded, you know, Kevin in one room and me in the other room and the fellow bouncing back and forth. And we had text with us and, you know, limited instrumentation. I remember cutting off a, a tibial nail with a, you know, bolt cutter to put it into a humerus. I mean, weird stuff. We had no x-ray in the, in the OR. So, you know, we're, we're, we're making do with what we had, but we, we were fortunate to have made an impact because so many people that I had spoken to about their experience, you know, they landed in Port-au-Prince without really much of a mission. And there were these big field hospitals, but a lot of, you know, just disjointed experiences in their, you know, putting on X fixes in the field and maybe, you know, amputations and other horrible things, uh, just managing uh, with very limited resources and not very productive. And I think we got through all the A's and most of the B's before we handed it off to the next team. But obviously, um, to this day, my wife and I, because she she was our logistics yeah, person, I was going to say, probably getting she, MVP for the whole trip. Yeah,
0: she was the team leader. We got to give a shout out to Monica. She was managing the she whole was process. She was unbelievable.
1: I mean, no joke. She had the next patient. She, she would, she would organize some family members of patients to, to walk up with her to get the next patient. And, you know, we're carrying them literally like old school military stretchers down, uh, down to the OR. Um, and she knew, you know, cause we wrote up a schedule for each day, what we were trying to do. And she had everybody in the, you know, basically the pre-op area ready to go. So there was, very little I think the turnover was about 120 seconds so it's a little <laughs> different than what we do here. but um oh man it was just one of those experiences that um really really had an impact on every single one of us that went
0: yeah, yeah. amazing story and and you know This is what I love about this show in particular in the podcast. You know, everybody just sort of thinks, oh, it's the ortho show. We're going to talk about orthopedics or some like, you know, crazy operation. But really what we do here is just listen to just such amazing, remarkable stories from amazing, remarkable people. And, uh, you know, this is why I love you, brother. I mean, it's just to think about the stuff we've done over, you know, 25 years of clinical practice. You know, when we first met in 1992 or 91, you know, it seems like we've gotten old. And I got one thing I got to tell you, you know, I got I got one. I got a little beef. You know, I was in really good shape. OK, I was in the best shape of my life until I went to your 50th birthday party in Cabo San Lucas. And literally since that moment in time, it has been all downhill physically. And i you all. <laughs> Um, oh, I,
1: I think it took it took a few years
0: off all of us. Yeah, that's the mariachi band. You got to love that mariachi band. What a what a fun time that was. But you know, look, Ramin, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time to tell your remarkable, unique story of a of, of really amazing, orthopedic career.
1: Scott, it is my pleasure. As you know, I I miss you. I don't see you face to face enough, but when I see you for even. One lunch at the Academy, it's like no time has passed and it's always a treat. And I'm still very, very impressed with the energy and enthusiasm you have for your ortho show, your ortho laser, your talks within the industry, and the fact that you're still keeping it fresh and and doing new and exciting things. And and, uh, you should pat yourself on the back every once in a while. You're doing a
0: great job. I have one word for you to end the show. Dude sweet (laughs) (laughs) this is dr scott sigman hashtag follow the fro host of the ortho show till next time